What's up, Marshall? Hi, Stan. How are you? Good. Are you recording? I am recording. So am I. Awesome. We're ready to go. What are we doing today? Yeah. <laughs> you seem nervous. I am. I'm always nervous. <laughs> you remember in that book, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, that he talked about Henry Fonda throwing up. I don't know whether Henry Fonda really did throw up before every performance or even whether he just threw up before a few performances, but you remember that? Yeah. Nice transition there. Yeah. <laughs> That's a... Are you trying to say we're going to talk about the war of art? Well, since I brought up the topic... <laughs> Hey, Stan, what do you want to talk about today? The War of Art, Marshall. We, <laughs> <laughs> it's a book. This book. I did a, a book review of, um, shit, what was that book called? <laughs> now, this is up to you. What was it? I, I did that book review that uh, in the season one. Man, it's like studying a book for you is sort of like pouring valuable, precious ointments into a funnel that you expect goes into the guy's brain and instead it's just leaking all it over. It bounces off the edges and fall, most of it falls out and then one thing goes in and I'm like, oh! <laughs> and that's the one thing I get out of it. <laughs> no, also all the, all the stuff that does make it into the funnel eventually just falls out. Actually, I don't think that is the case with you. You're doing yourself an injustice. You, uh, you, you put this stuff to use. You work it out into your life. Some of it becomes more second nature to me and I forget about where I even got the stuff. Yeah. I, I forget those like specific things, the facts, like the name of the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where I got the information. I forget that stuff but I, um, I think I put stuff into practice and then it just becomes, it just becomes part of me. Yeah, I think it does too. This came, this came up last night in watching, we did our first session of Fantastic Beasts with Marshall Vandruff and Vance Kovacs last night. And we had a good group online and Vance did about an hour plus demo. And one of the questions that came up was, how much of this are you consciously thinking of anatomy and form and composition yeah. and how much of it is subconscious. And he pointed out how much of it is subconscious at this point, but it all came from carefully and consciously considering things over a period of years before it sinks in. Right. So, congratulations for not remembering the name of the book, but putting the- I just remembered it. Principles to use. What was it? The Art of Learning. So, we've got The Art of Learning. Yeah. And we've got, a, there is a book by Sun Tzu called The Art of War and we skipped over that one to go to The War of Art. I did that mini review last season of The Art of Learning and I think people reacted to it really well and people asked for more book reviews and so here we are. This is why we decided to, uh, to do another book review. Marshall and I both read the book this week. No, I didn't read it, sorry. I, I I listened to the audiobook and actually you guys, this is such an easy book to get through. The You can read it in one sitting 
right? Yes. I think you said that the first time you read it, you read it all in one sitting, in one night, right? That's right. 2003, 17 years ago, I read this in one sitting. The first time I did it, I also read it. I didn't listen to it. Mm -hmm. It was probably 2005 or something like that. And But no, this time around, I listened to it and it's only two and a half hours long. You could listen through the whole book on a on a hike or on a on a walk or something in one after one morning, you know. And that's actually what I did. I listened to the whole thing this morning. <laughs> Good. So you got your exercise yeah. and you Yeah, it's fresh in my mind. I just finished it fifteen minutes ago. Was the reader a good reader? It was him. It was the author. Oh, it was the author. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. The author read it. And he is. He's a good reader. Yeah. Good. He, I mean, he, he, it sounded like he meant it too, you know. <laughs> Great. I do have to say, I think there are some dangers to this book. I do too. And I, I think that we definitely need to disclose them. And, and, and kind of looking back, I think that as a young person, you know, some people might not be ready for this book. It, it, it might actually... People who are not ready for it can misinterpret it and start doing things that are completely wrong. Mm -hmm. Should we start with that or should we, should we go into that stuff once it comes out? No, I, I think we should start with something about what the book intends and that it's got a very simple three-part structure. That three-part structure was important to it. Should I give a, a, a shot at, at synopsizing? Yeah, go ahead. The War of Art, a take on the title, The Art of War, Sun Tzu's old book, is that when we set out to create, we will meet resistance. And the first section of the book, if it's divided into three parts, the first section is resistance. That there will be everything that wants you not to create, and it will be easier to not create. And therefore, part two is taking up arms turning pro, uh, overcoming resistance, that it, it's of necessity, a fight to create. And then part three is beyond uh, resistance, I think it was called. It was about that there is help. There is help from above. There is help uh, in places that can be debated where it comes from. And that's part of the theme of what Robert McKee brought up in the intro to it. Uh, that he disagrees with Stephen Pressfield's theism, that there are divine powers, supernatural powers that help us, but that it doesn't make any difference practically, because what, what Stephen Pressfield calls the gods or God, Robert McKee calls talent, and that it's a part of our genetic code. But we've got this battle going on in us, resisting the things that we can do well and striving to do the things that we can do well. And the book as a whole, when I first read it, I didn't like it as much as I did this time. It was better on a second and longer and thorough read, but I must say it is very inspiring to want you to go to war and take up arms against mediocrity and laziness. Yeah. Uh, it was, it is, a, 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 and it's sort of a call to arms. It's a battle cry in a way. Yeah. And he really, really unpacks the war metaphor. I mean, this guy is a former Marine. Oh, really? 
Yeah, don't you remember he had that part in there about? I remember him talking about Marines, but I didn't didn't know he said that he's a Marine. I'm yeah. In fact, I don't know whether it's okay to say that he was a Marine. It may be that if he was to hear me say that, he'd put his fist through my face. If you were a Marine, you are a Marine, and (laughs) the way I simplify the book into maybe one sentence, and I know this is definitely just kind of like the surface of it. He goes into a lot of detail, but it's basically to beat the resistance that we all have as artists, we have to just sit down and work. (laughs) That's basically what he's saying. Yeah. But I think that this book is not for workaholics. Um, When I read this book, when I was younger, and I still am, I think, a workaholic. And I think it it left, it it made me even more of one. Yes. Because it kind of gave me an excuse to to keep working and work more and work as much as possible. But it is, this book is for those artists that are struggling with um, imposter syndrome, or those artists mm-hmm. that struggle to find motivation to draw every day. If, and I, I think that most artists fall into that category. Or maybe, I, I don't know if I should say most artists. Most uh, people that want to be artists, <laughs> yeah, yeah, fall into yeah. that category. More people that are the most people that are trying to be artists, the students, they yeah. I think fall into the more of that category more so than the workaholic, which I think both are bad. Mm-hmm. I don't think that being a workaholic is better than being you know having imposter syndrome. They're both they're kind of like two extremes, and you you have to figure out how to how to be there right in the middle and and get the the best of both. He would disagree probably about the workaholic thing, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that's why I say it could be misinterpreted. Yes. If you read the book the way he intended it to and you get exactly what he's saying, I think the book is wonderful. The chapter on healing though, where you've got all these people that are seeking healing and seeking healing and seeking healing and his advice to them is you're not going to find healing by seeking healing. You're going to find healing if you just get to work and do the work that you're going to do. And uh, healing is a personal thing, not a work thing. Yeah, that was a pretty harsh little bit in there. He had four or five things in there that I marked (laughs) that I thought, this is harsh. The word harsh came out of my pencil several times in marking up the book. Yeah. He does, right after he said that though, he does say that true healing is important as well. Yeah, he did. He did. Um, so, he understands that what he's saying is a little ridiculous. <laughs> it was filled with hyperbole. Mm-hmm. It was filled with exaggerations and making the point. And I found that when I read it silent to, silently to myself, I didn't enjoy the hyperbole as much as when I read it out loud to people huh. and we would burst into laughter. <laughs> Because of how extreme it is? Because he overstates the case to the yeah. point of where it's meant to be funny, I think. He's hmm. he's uh, he's doing a battle cry. Do you think so? Do you think he's trying to make it funny? Would you like me to read a portion? Sure. Okay. Okay. So, this is a portion that you think he is trying to make funny. Yeah. Okay. Let me find how to be miserable. <clears throat> the Marine Corps teaches you how to be miserable. This is invaluable for an artist. 
Marines love to be miserable. Marines derive a perverse satisfaction in having colder chow, crappier equipment, and higher casualty rates than any outfit of dog faces, swab jockeys, or flyboys, all of whom they despise. Why? Because these candy asses don't know how to be miserable. The artist committing himself to his calling has volunteered for hell, whether he knows it or not. The artist must be like that Marine. He has to know how to be miserable. He has to love being miserable. He has to take pride in being more miserable than any soldier or swabby or jet jockey because this is war, baby, and war is hell. Yeah. Okay. I think he was hoping to amuse us in the process. He was trying to add a little humor in there, but I think he meant every word of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the humor that comes out of taking a truth and running with it. Yeah. But even that, that page, I, I was skipping over little portions. I think we, we do need to start with his, state, his part one of the book is, is resistance, defining resistance, yep. why it's so bad, what, it, you know, what the hell are we talking about here? He mentions that resistance happens whenever we take up something that embraces long-term good mm -hmm. at the expense of short-term gratification, which means that we will have resistance if we try to lose weight if we're overweight, uh, gain muscle if we're underweight, uh, work on any kind of project, uh, particularly a long-term project, painting or writing or anything creative, we will meet resistance when we do that. We will not meet resistance uh, if we are setting out to do something that laziness is the main aspect of it. Uh, you know, just goofing around. Yeah. Um, he, he talks about resistance as a, as a character. Resistance yeah. is a character in his book and it's the enemy. It's basically yeah. anything that prevents you from doing the work. And it's got many forms. Resistance is, is literally anything. What were some of your favorite? <laughs> Any that stood out to you? Some of them are obvious, right? Like, like and th those are not my favorite. I'll get to my favorites, but okay. the obvious ones are, you know, procrastination, um, mm -hmm. uh, getting to the things that are urgent instead of important, mm -hmm. right? Um, just going out and, and doing something that's easy, playing video games. I talk about that one a lot. That I, I, I think I'm a little too harsh on it, but whatever. Um, he even says pornography, you know, just, just anything that you like is just like you, you fill your time with all this other stuff that you, you know, isn't going to get you to your goal, but is there to prevent you from doing that thing that you know is really important. Now, my, my favorites are the ones where he says, like, resistance can disguise itself. Yeah, those were my favorites, too. And then when he mentioned some, I was like, oh, man, yeah. Like, that's so true. And you don't even realize that that's resistance until he says it. Um, the one that I remember the most is you have a new idea, a new project that you're super excited about. You, you know that that like new idea phase where you're just like, oh my God, oh my God, I gotta, I gotta get started. And during that time, you're so excited about this new project that you set unrealistic expectations for yourself. 
You, yes. you set deadlines that you'll never be able to meet because you just want to get it done. You're like, all right, let's do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish this, this script by, by this Friday and then we're going to start production and, and we'll release it next Wednesday. Um, like we got to get this out there because it's going to really help us out. It's going to help so many students, whatever. Um, that book that you want to write and you heard that um, other writers just can write, you know, thousands of words per, per day or whatever and you're like, well, I could probably get that done in a week. Um, you get so excited that you you set these unrealistic expectations and you're doomed to fail because of it. Mm-hmm. You waste all your energy in the beginning and then you just crash and burn. Yeah. And then you just never finish it. And it, it was a disguise. Resistance yeah. was a disguise because it pretended, it, it manifests itself as enthusiasm. Yeah. But it was unrealistic enthusiasm that made us overshoot the mark, which means it, it's the crash and burn thing. Yeah. Yeah. Th- that wasn't a realistic goal. Yeah. This was in the chapter of the book where he talks about the professional versus the amateur. Yeah. And he talks about how the professional uh, knows that it's, in, it's a long game. Yeah. That you, you can't put all your energy at the, in the beginning. You have to save your energy and... Um, and be able to do the, the long distance run instead of the 60 yard dash. One of the attributes of a professional is patience. Mm-hmm. And enthusiasm can become secretly self-sabotage because it, it, there's something in us that should know, at least with uh, now that we've read the book, not to give in to that. And the enthusiasm will disappear. The emotions can only last for so long. Yeah, he used the word work, 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 all through this book. I think it was one of the most used words in the book. More than resistance? Than the, uh, well, yeah, yeah, uh, resistance and work. But it was, <laughs> it was that reminding you, sit down and do the work, sit yeah. down and do the work. The hard part is not the work. The hard part is sitting down to do it. Right. Everyone knows this. The hard part is getting started. And so, when those of you who call in with voicemails talking about a lack of motivation and send me emails hoping that I will kick your butt, I'm not a drill sergeant teacher. You're not a Marine. I'm not a Marine. No, I've got other metaphors. (laughs) This guy will kick your butt. So, if you are looking for a mentor, a teacher who will put you through the ropes and make you do the drills. Go to this guy because he's going to have he's got a no nonsense attitude. What was your favorite form of resistance? I had a few I had a few of them. One is that he likened resistance to a lawyer <laughs> who talk talks you out of it, right? <laughs> Shows you what the stakes are. Yeah. Another one was that sometimes resistance is not a lawyer. Sometimes it just puts a nine millimeter right in front of your face and says, don't do it. <laughs> uh, there was another one though. It was one of my favorite ones was rationalization. Yeah, that's a big one. I mean, that's one of the obvious ones though, isn't it? Yeah. Well, listen to this. I, I, I uh, dictated it into my notes. Rationalization is resistance's right-hand man. Its job is to keep us from feeling the shame we would feel if we truly faced what cowards we are for not doing our work. (laughs) It's one thing to lie to ourselves. It's another thing to believe it. 
Yeah. And I wrote, I wrote in the book, Stephen is a good influence, a good older sibling, a warning mentor. His, his energy is very much, I want to protect you from a lot of unnecessary misery. It's going to be miserable, but why not make the misery an investment? And so he is just giving loads of advice how to recognize the enemy of your creativity when it comes in disguise. Oh, one of them, I can't say it was my favorite, but it's one that hit me really hard, was seeking support. That seeking support is a way to disguise our laziness. We've got to get someone else to help us with it. We've got to get someone to collaborate with us. We've got to get someone who will make it easier for us. And he keeps pointing back to, it is your responsibility, not someone else. And I thought about how many, many days, weeks, months, and years I've wasted hmm. seeking someone to help me with something that it really, it's just all on your shoulders. You've got to do it. Yeah. It's an excuse to not start because you think you need someone else there with you. Right. But there is something to be said on the other side, because I spent some time thinking that one through and feeling that one through and recognizing how much time I wasted seeking support, but then also recognizing how supported I've been. One of the things that you and I have brought up is that we were supported by our parents, but I thought I've run a business teaching seminars over the years from about 1999, 2000, now turning into webinars. I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have uh, run my own website if I didn't have the support of a colleague that I've known for 40 years where right. she does all sorts of work for me. Yeah, I, I think obviously support is important and it can be a, a really big game changer. Um, but yes, I think maybe what he's saying is that you shouldn't, it shouldn't prevent you from doing your work if you don't have it. Yeah. Because you could still get it done without support. Support can definitely be like uh, a little boost. Now, I'm jumping ahead to the third section. Yeah. Where once we start and we just start digging the trench ourselves, and we have to break the ground and do so much hard work, it not only meets resistance, it attracts help. Yeah. Other people see, hey, I could be uh, along on that journey too. So he does, he does in the last part of it really end on a very positive, encouraging note of attracting energies. He uses the analogy of a, a magnet attracting iron filings uh, and other ones too that we put out an energy. If you spend all your time as a beginner trying to get mentors to mentor you, you're probably not going to get it. But if you first start focusing on yourself, improving yourself, and then you prove to other people that you're someone worth mentoring, they'll just come to you. Yeah. It, it tends to just kind of happen to the people that are obviously mentorable and worth mentoring. Yeah. We've spent a good deal of time uh, on that one. Uh, what do you want to do now? You want to just go through favorite parts or uh, did we neglect anything about the structure of the book? I don't think so. I mean, it, the the book is very simple. It's a short book. He defines resistance and then he helps you get over it. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about the difference between reading something in one sitting, listening to it, and then doing a digestive reading, which is what I did this last time. When I first read it, mm -hmm. it was one sitting 
and I got the gist of it, and I came away feeling amped up for a week or three. That was, wow, I'll go back and read that one again. 17 years later, Stan suggests that we do this as a podcast, and so I got it a week ahead of time, and that two and a half hours of reading, I stretched out to much longer. And one of the things I did, because I figured one of the advantages of reading a physical book is that you can mark up the book and make notes on the paper. Oh, another thing, one of the reasons why this is a quick read is look at how many times he will make short chapters that leave blank space at the base of the page so that if you want to put notes in there, you can. And I just filled it with pencil notes as I went so that it became a dialogue more than a reading. Then, this morning, I went through everything I wrote in this book and all the parts that I marked and dictated them into my speech to text. And even though I didn't have time to read the speech to text, there was something about taking the important part of this book out of an hour and a half or two, speaking it out loud that sinks it in deeper. So that I would still, I would still read this book another time, yeah. just as a rehearsal. But I feel like this is the reading that I really slowly digested to get all of the nutrients out of this that he's got to offer. I definitely agree with you. I mean, the first time I read it, I read it probably over a week or two. Mm -hmm. I think I read a few chapters at once. And he's got how many chapters are in it? It's it's a, a it's lot, a lot of all, tiny chapters. A lot of them are short chapters. Yeah, yeah, I think the first time I read it, I would read a few chapters, and then I would just let them process. Yeah. They would just be on my mind throughout the day, and then the next day I would I would read a few more chapters. I would not spend a long time on it every day. And he's got so many chapters. <laughs> he's got so many chapters. He doesn't even list the the chapters. He only lists the three sections. Yeah, here in book one, book two, book three. The uh, in Audible. So, these are the chapters of the audiobook and you can just keep scrolling. Wow. Scrolling. And some these of are them all must the only chapters. be one minute. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, let me see. Some of those would be one and two minute chapters, yep. right? Yeah. Most of them are one to four minutes. Yeah. Most within around two minutes. One chapter is 18 seconds long. <laughs> yeah. But it's like a bite that yeah. you're going to chew on and take your time with. Yeah. And you know, when I was listening to it, I actually, I didn't realize that he's going through chapters here. They didn't feel like, they didn't feel like chapters. They just felt like paragraphs, honestly. Like, there's a they thought, did. here's another thought. But anyway, my, what I was saying is that like, the first time I read it, I let it digest. And I think it stuck more. Today, I listened to the whole thing in two and a half hours. In fact, probably less because I had it at 120% speed. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. I, it, probably less than two hours. And I definitely feel like, there were many, many moments where I wanted to stop and think and and write notes and just, just really just stop and just let it settle for a while before I move on because the book is so short and, it, and because of that, it's really condensed or maybe it's really condensed. That's why it's so short because every chapter is a thought that you need to think about. And if you just move on to the next thought, it's gone. You really need to make sure to soak it in. So, I would highly advise against what I did today of 
listening to the whole thing in one session unless you plan on doing that kind of getting a general idea of the whole thing and then coming back yeah. to it that, that's oh, probably yeah. that's actually yeah. probably a better idea i think anything that is worth really worth reading with with uh, uh is worth reading twice mm-hmm. and to go through it quickly to get the gestalt and to go through it slowly to absorb every bit of it mm-hmm. When I enjoy books, I read them six, seven, eight times. It's, it's, I, I like doing that. It's like an old friend that want to remind myself what was in here that was of such value. Yeah. I think most of my criticism comes to, is for the first half of the book. It's the part of the book where he defines resistance and he, he, he talks about going to war again. Or he, he talks about how evil resistance is and how much it is your enemy. The second half of the book where he actually starts going into a more positive note, I don't think I had too much bad stuff to say about it. It gets very spiritual and those are the moments where I felt like I needed to kind of stop and think about it because it was very heavy on philosophy and you you had to kind of dig into those thoughts and, and think about them for a while. Yeah. Let me talk about the some of those dangers. Okay. Before we move on to the second half of the book. I mean, do you agree with the dangers, the dangers that you're thinking about? Are they for the first half of the book or not? Maybe. Maybe. I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm not all that clear about where some of the one, when he attacked victimhood, that was a dangerous one. You know what I mean? Well, uh, no, which, which I didn't write that one down. That if you're a victim, if you're a victim, uh, there was a kind of sense of get over it. Oh, yeah. I put, he definitely shoots to kill victimhood. He thinks that a person who is in the position of victim is playing a role of passive aggression, hoping that someone will rescue them, and that this is the opposite of doing your work. Now, I know that if you were to talk with him personally, he would say, no, I'm not saying that all, some people are, are, are victims of other people's aggression and things outside their control. But there was definitely a military kind of lack of compassion. Yeah for the soldier who's suffering. That's where the war metaphor is not my favorite. Yeah. And I'd switch over to the nurturing metaphor. But that was one of the ones that popped out to me. Okay. Uh, There were a couple others, but I want to hear what you've got to say. When he's defining resistance, he gives examples in there that I feel are a little dangerous. And because he's talking about resistance being like the enemy, and then he gives examples of resistance that to me are complete, that I don't think is an an enemy at all. It makes me feel like, like, ah, crap. Like, is resistance actually bad? (laughs) Or is this guy just being a little too brutal here? And I know that when I was younger and I read that stuff, I didn't have those thoughts of, oh man, those things aren't actually bad. I thought, oh crap, that stuff's bad. I gotta, I gotta avoid that stuff. Like I just kind of took what he was saying literally. And so some of the things I'm talking about is like one example of resistance that he gives is uh, if your wife is eight months pregnant and you know you have to be home with her, that's resistance. But he also said that that's one of the instances where you you bow to the resistance. Did he? 
Oh, yeah, yeah, he did. That specific example? It was in that paragraph. How did he say it? I think it was more subtle than the way you just said it. I found it. Okay, go ahead. Read it. What's particularly insidious about the rationalizations that resistance presents to us is that a lot of them are true. Yeah. They're legitimate. Our wife may really be in her eighth month of pregnancy. She may in truth need us at home. Our department may really be instituting a changeover that will eat up hours of our time. Indeed, it may make sense to put off finishing our dissertation at least till after the baby's born. See, when I read that, it all felt like there was a but at the end of it. There is. Like he's still presenting all of this as resistance that needs to be fought. As opposed to a dance. Yes. Where you switch partners. Exactly. The younger me did not catch that subtlety that you just said. The younger me thought, oh crap, all that time I spend with my girlfriend building a relationship, that's resistance. I need to I need to get my schedule to be as as much as possible filled with work and as little as possible be filled with my relationships. It does have that connotation. But you're also getting a book from someone who has gone through a life where there have been wounds and imbalances, and he talks about those in there. That means that not everything anybody says is all to be taken at face value. There's subtext underneath it. Yeah. And it's it really comes down to my criticism of uh, that is in agreement with what you've said is that war is a risky metaphor mm. for creating your art. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to elaborate on this for, uh, for a minute or two, Stan, because okay. it's been important to me personally. Okay. I have never been a warrior. I have an older brother who was a warrior. And as I watched him and I was developing my bearing, it was certainly not to be a, a warrior. It's more to be the cook, to more to be the uh, creative craftsman. And as I went on through my life, I recognized I didn't have to fight many battles uh, because I had an older brother who would fight battles for me when it came to that. I spent 14 years in a university, which became a, a battleground, but I had I had a wonderful man in my life whom I'm still in contact with regularly who fought my battles for me. I had people waging war on my behalf so that I could live a life of relative peace. But it's been in the last few years where I've recognized that life is battle. Have you ever heard that quote by William S. Burroughs that this is a war universe? No. This is a war universe. War all the time. That is its nature. There may be other universes based on all sorts of other principles, but ours seems to be based on war and games. I understand that more now than ever before. And that the best reason for war is to create a plateau of peace where good things can happen, where play can happen that is in goodwill and fun. So, uh, accepting it, I've still got to say that my nature goes against the competitive model because I prefer other analogies. But that's part of why a book like this. Is, is good. It's good for me. It helps balance me out to recognize it's all not just sitting around in the kitchen or 
polishing jewels or entertaining the kids. Uh, it is also the hard work of the fact that there are enemies. And I'm close to a student who went through medical school that explained to me that the immune system, the rotation that was the immune system, the metaphor of the immune system is, is battle, is war. There's really no other one that makes much sense because it will either be this virus, this intruder, or my body. One or the other will end up dead. And to pretend like that is not happening just means that you, you lose the battle. And so it's a necessary metaphor, at least. And for some people, a thrilling metaphor. Some people just love the thrill of battle. They live for it. Yeah. And w those who do, they've got their issues. A portrait of a person like that is Jake LaMotta uh, that Robert De Niro played in a 1980 movie called Raging Bull. There's a guy who's his, his, he's just great at fighting, but he can't turn it off and he doesn't know how to use it for good. Hmm. That's, that's, that would be my, my arch view of it. Warriors will love this book. Non-warriors may need a dose of this uh, as a reality check, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. The, the, the war metaphor, I think, kind of boils it down. I wrote several things down that I think are dangerous about this that could be misinterpreted about this book. It. And I think all of them come down to the, this war metaphor though. So, I think I want to be a responsible adult here and realize that a lot of kids are going to be or, you know, young adults are going to be listening to this and they might fall into the same trap I, I kind of did when I read it as a young adult. And I, I just want to point out these dangers that to, to say like, do not come to these conclusions after write, uh, reading this book. This is not what he is saying. Okay. One of them is this book kind of gives permission to put aside our relationships and focus on our selfish motivations to do, to build something. Kind of. Not, I mean, again, this is a misinterpretation. <laughs> it kind of feels like work is the most important thing in our lives and nothing else is important. Yeah. It makes it feel like everyone around you becomes an enemy that is preventing you from doing your work <laughs> and you have to fight everyone around you from get them out of your way so that you can do your work. It does. It kind yeah. of points at it. It's like, yeah, you see what that guy just did? That's resistance. If you fall into the temptation to go do that, <laughs> that's resistance. Don't, don't go do that with that person that yeah. you love. <laughs> Everybody's an enemy. Yes. It, that's dangerous. It, it, it's, I know that's also, again, it's not what he's saying, but it's just, it's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking that's what he's saying. Don't interpret this book that way, please. Don't talk to any strangers. In fact, don't even have any any relationships with anyone. Anyone can ruin you. Yeah. They might call you when you're working. <laughs> yeah. It's sabotage. Yeah, See? It's, sabotage. it's a conspiracy. Those are the main ones. Um, kid, you know, I think he, did he even mention if a kid walks into your room? He mentioned something. Yeah, kids yeah, yeah. are not resistance. Kids are not your resistance. If a kid walks into your room, you put away what you're doing and you focus on the kid. You, That's you, a matter of priorities. Yes. yes. You could spend your, the, the next five minutes with your child 
giving them the attention that they need right now from you. You are such a 21st century dad. <laughs> okay. I mean, is that really? Is this 20, only 21st century dads? Were there no dads in the 20th century? I don't know the complexity of how dads have been, but I know that through the 20th century, the, the uh, specialization and exchange of what the mom does and what the dad does was very clear and that dads typically have a heart for their kids and then they recognize that they can't get any work done and so they move the office out of the home. That's that's a common phenomenon if the dad is the one everybody is looking to yeah. to make the money. Well, okay, there is a balance though. I don't think that if the kid is, you know, if Cooper walks in and he wants to spend an hour here. I, you know, eventually I'm like, hey, honey, can, um, like, I got to get back to work. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not going to ignore him when he comes in. I'm going to, I'm going to give my time, a li you know, some time yeah. to him when he walks in because he's excited about something. He wants to show me something. He wants to share his thoughts with me. Then it could become more than that. He might finish what he had to say and then he might notice something else in the room and it just becomes playtime in my room. That playtime can continue downstairs, but this is a case where your work is resistance. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Right? The more important long-term bond is your relationship with him. Yeah. That you may even forget about what project you were working on. And so whenever you can to give him that energy, recognizing the work would like you to not invest in him. Yeah. When an adult like yourself reads this book, you understand that. That what yeah. Stephen is saying is that it's not just the work you're doing that faces resistance. It's anything that you think is important to do in your life. Yeah. He uses like work a lot, literally like, like writing a book and and making a painting like that is the example he uses a lot but in the beginning of the book he mentions getting married is another thing that you might think is important to you but you don't get out there and make progress on it to to build that relationship with someone because of resistance getting married faces the same resistance as creating a painting yeah if you want to start a family that's something really important to you and you will face resistance. If you want to start a charity, he mentions that as well, doing just changing the world to making a better place, helping the homeless. I think these are all examples he uses, but he doesn't use them enough. Right. It is a very masculine book. And he does mention in there having a baby, giving birth. He also switches pronouns a number of times so that he's mm -hmm. trying to balance out how many times he refers to the artist as him and her. But uh, it, it even ends it that toward the end that uh, he really uh, pulls a good deal out of the birth analogy when he's talking about beyond resistance and that ego and humility are that we do not create the baby. The mother does not create the baby. The baby is uh, the mother is a vessel through which the baby comes, and that attitude means that you have to do the work. There's a ton of work to be done here, but ultimately. You are not the one who is responsible for, for 
uh, the birth. It's it's a it's a dance. He, he switches metaphors without ever really. That is one part of the book that I I actually wanted to just get your opinion on it because I was a little confused if I agree with it or not. Go ahead. It was one of those things where I wanted to put the book down and think, and I, I haven't been able to do that yet. Um, yeah. When he's talking about how the work you do, the art you create, it's not yours. It was sent by the gods through you and you are just the thing that is making it happen. Yeah. What do you, what do you think of that? Well, that is something I probably discussed with some of my artist friends more than any other topic. Okay. Uh, when we're talking, and it's philosophical, it's getting up over that. And here's the thing, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this a lot. And she also makes distinctions between job and career and vocation and calling that I think are useful and encouraging. But she even has a TED talk on it about how much of this comes from us and how much of it comes from somewhere else. Well, Stephen Pressfield believes it comes from somewhere else. Robert McKee doesn't. This is the classic theist versus atheist clash over the nature of the universe. Well, hold on. Doesn't he say though that like it, it's not like when he says it comes from the gods, it might not be the gods. It might the, the gods might be our talent or something. Here's what I like about what he did at the beginning of that third section is that when you are speaking from an atheist point of view or a theist point of view and you want an inclusive audience, that means I've got people on all sides of the spectrum. The thing to do is look where do the two circles overlap and whether talent is from God or from a random smattering of genes is one question. Uh, whether resistance is coming from demons and help and aid are coming from angels uh, as opposed to just gravity or some <laughs> impersonal force yeah. uh, is one issue. But what we both agree on, on all sides of the religious, supernatural, divine versus no divine spectrum, is that these forces are real. And personifying them, the Greeks saw forces and started to put names on them. The Jews were the ones who introduced that the great God is one who has parental energy, in their case, particularly father energy. And that these are, whatever they are, they are making something that is so abstract and big that we can't grasp it and turning it into something that we can grasp. And so when he starts out, he includes all of us in the umbrella of what he's getting at, that if you don't believe there's real spirits, you don't believe there's real muses, that's okay. Let's pretend there are and name them because just the names of the nine muses are going to give us insight into what kind of help we need, what kind of help we're going to get, which healer is going to come to our aid for that. So it's essentially storytelling for the benefit of all, whether you believe the story is true, literally, or true in a great big figurative sense. Now, I know I went on a long time. No, that's that, good. But I liked how he handled the religious side of it and that McKee could write an intro saying, hey, we don't agree on that one thing, but we do agree on this other thing, that it is these forces are real, even if they're not literal. One of the forces he talks about that really stuck with me um, 
where it's like you you don't know what it is but it's there it's like you know when you're you're winding down or you're, you're taking a shower and all of a sudden a thought just comes to you like an insight just pops into your mind like a revision for your work all of us it's like where did that come from right it's your subconscious it's yeah. an angel whatever it is it's a miracle no matter like no matter how you think of it it's, it's amazing that this happens we're not trying to solve a problem but all of a sudden there it is it's it you, the solution just comes yeah it, it's like there and he mentions a few metaphors in there it's like and, and one of them was you know it's like what software is running in our brain that is scanning yeah. scanning gigabytes of of memory and thoughts and, and organizing them and then all of a sudden just throwing the solution at us it's like what is this thing in our brain and it's like yeah that's true that's crazy if you think about it as software it is a pretty complicated thing that is always running in the background that we're not consciously aware of and it just gets thrown at you as a solution. It is a miracle. It is a miracle. It's like it's the question of evolution. Why does evolution happen? Where does it come from? What is this thing that says it should go this way or that way or let's favor this or favor the other? You, when we start to study science, with a purely horizontal view that there is no outside force that's integrating into it, we end up personifying evolution to where it has opinions and preferences. So I see, if nothing else, I see this, he, he prays to the muse before he gets to work. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. He prays out loud to the muse. I see it as taking it seriously that this is an unknown power, this is a mystery, but I'm not going to have disrespect for it and say it doesn't even exist. I'm going to say whatever it is, I just don't know. I'm down here on this blind area right. and, and so, gosh, if muses, if you're there, and that can even evolve where he'll have insight as he goes on. Yeah. I guess what, what I'm making out of it now after, after hearing you is that whether it's true or not, that it's just sent through us and we are just here as these vessels to put it together. Whether that's true or not, thinking in that way might be helpful. I think so, yeah. Right, just having that mentality could be useful. Because one of the things he said that was um, really powerful to me actually was how if you focus on the craft rather than the art, then you can get, I don't know what he said, you can get more done. If you focus on the art instead, it could paralyze you. If you focus on the why and, and, and all that, it, it's like, it, it's so intimidating that you could just end up not doing work. Yeah. And that's actually kind of been true with me. I, I look back and it's like, wow, man, that's so true. Like, like if, I, if I try to give it meaning or figure out the purpose of anything, it, it just... It takes the fun away from it and it, um, it is very intimidating. It's like if I don't have a reason for it, then I don't end up not doing it. I don't need a reason. Just do it. <laughs> Charlie's, I know what Charlie's going to play it. <laughs> Just do it. My notes, I put seeing it as craft, not art. Let the muses do their part. We just do the work. Uh-huh. Yeah, and if, if nothing else, it's kind, it's kind of exciting. It's, if it's just a game of pretend, it's a good game of pretend. 
it can yield some very good things. Do you want to talk a little bit about the professional versus the amateur? I don't think we gave that enough talk. Yes, I would like to. Let's okay. let's talk about his his explanation of the difference between the amateur and the professional. First of all, before the differences, I think it's important to note that what he talks about as a professional is is not necessarily it's not something that someone gives to you. It's not that you got hired for a job all of a sudden you're a pro. It's more it's internal. It's a mentality. It's the it's the way you take yourself seriously. Um it's a decision you make. Yes. For yourself. It is not a badge someone gives you once you reach to that point. It's an attitude as much as anything else. It's an attitude, it's a mentality, it's a way of thinking about what you do. Um and so he he talks about how yeah, professionals make money, but it's not about the money. That's not why he talks about being a professional as being so important. It's that professionals go to work every day no matter what, right? Yeah. You, you might do it because you need the money, but you do it anyway. You, you, like either way, you're going to work. You put in the time. He goes over and over that professionals show up every day. Yes. Professionals do it whether they feel like it or not. Professionals get the work done. I mean, he's got a whole litany <laughs> yes. of things that professionals do to to separate them from yeah from the namby pamby amateurs that he that he disses. Yeah, and the and the difference is then the the amateur is the person that thinks of it as a side thing. It might be the thing that you love. You know, you might have a full time job that you do for the money, and then there there's that side thing you do that you love. But you're an amateur at it because yeah. you don't love it enough to do it full time. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was his big flip. Uh, amateur means doing it for the, the work of, of the one who loves it. And his point was they don't love it enough. Yeah. They aren't, they aren't like us pros. Yeah. Which shit. Now, now what, like, look, okay, what happens now when we bring it back to like children? Does that mean I don't love my son enough because I don't give him full-time attention? No. I, th I think that breaks down, a the full-time thing breaks down a little bit. <laughs> Stephen Pressfield is making war, when it, when it comes to a war cry, you do not say and make sure that you organize your table beforehand and clean up your room before you go out to fight. It's all in. This guy is yeah. all in. And I can think that a, an amateur could read this book and be quite encouraged by it because it could mean that they are going to, to use the analogy, up their game. They're going to get better at it. But his view is that professionals are the real ones who love it because they love it enough to devote their life to it and not just flirt. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's a hardcore call. I get what he's saying. The, the mentality, it still works, although that one little point there, I was like, mm. Yeah, I had a number of those, mm. Uh, <laughs> ah, mm. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's, again, that was one of those situations where he's putting attention on a literal job and doing something full time versus anything that you really have a passion for and you want to do. Um, but anyway, I, I might be wrong. I, I, again, like I haven't given this that much thought. I think we learn something from people who are extreme, even if we deal with their extremeness, that this is someone who has taken this analogy of creating art is war. 
one of the most, two of the most accomplished people I know in the arts are warriors, and they use warrior metaphors that they'll see, will compliment a piece. Yeah, that piece almost did me in, but I overcame it at the end. Uh, there's mm -hmm. an attitude like that, but it is, uh, it is not the only one, but we can learn from them. There's the polishing the jewels one, there's the preparing the meal one, there's the, uh, the decorating the cake one, you know, so oh, decorating the cake. It's nothing like going out and slaughtering a few people for a cause. Wait, what? I missed that one. What? Explain it. This guy locks onto, you are in battle with resistance. Set aside everything else. Don't eat. Don't sleep. <laughs> what a wimp. You can't sleep when the enemy is there. He is on the extreme of how important this is. Yeah. I, and, and he's amusing that he would take it that far and, you know, shake his fist and rally. So, yeah, it's good for us, but it does not mean that that needs to be our fundamental yeah. bearing. But I just, I'm so afraid that if he were to see this podcast, that he might show up at my front door <laughs> with, with a nine millimeter. Now, what does he say about fear, Marshall? Oh, ah, you're he afraid, says something but... really useful about fear. Yeah. It's related to just resistance in general, but fear is one of the best things we can have Yeah, because it is a compass as resistance is a compass. What do we fear most? That's the thing that we are called on by divine powers to overcome. So, what is that I'm most afraid of? <laughs> so, Marshall, I'm, your fear, your fear that he is going to come and kick your ass. Means, I've got to get together with him. Means that this is what you need to be doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is criticizing it is. him. I've gotta, <laughs> he said it himself. Yeah, but I've got to get in the ring with him and we've got to sit down. And I've got to say, okay, Stephen, bring it on. And then as, as soon as we get in the ring, I'll say, I really loved your book. It really meant a lot to me, and I just think the world of you. <laughs> this book is like, I love it, and I, and I hate it, but I love it. <laughs> it's, it's all over the place. The, the first two-thirds of it are discomforting. The last third is very comforting, because what he says, oh, he's in the first part, he talks about the, the uh, danger of isolation and how people, artists don't, people are fearful of being isolated. That's relevant right now because of isolation. He's talked about not if you're an artist, not if you're a writer. He says, I'm never lonely. I've got my characters. People who are uh, working on, on work that they love, they are in the company of their muses, of their work. And it's why I think this, this crisis of isolation has been much less hard on, on many artists than it has been on everyone else. But then at the end, he talks about that essentially you are not alone. If you really go out on this, you've got teammates, you will attract the people that you need, you will attract the powers that you need. There's a, a very encouraging, inspiring last chapter to this book, but it would be pointless to open the book and read the last chapter. <laughs> yeah. It would be more valuable to go through the discomfort of chapter one says, it's gonna be hell. Don't go into this unless you're ready to fight a war. And I should mention, he's right. Uh, going into the arts is harder than anyone imagines it 
before they go in. And then the second part on turning pro is about what it takes to be a pro. And we're getting this from a guy who has been a pro and a suffering pro, and he's telling the truth that it is going to take tremendous dedication and looking beyond how it feels. I decided when I was younger that I wanted to be an artist, and if I had to be an amateur, I would be okay with that, but it isn't what I wanted. And I kept going at it and going at it and going at it. It was awkward and lots of misstarts and lots of financial challenges. It was, uh, it was, it was something that if uh, the Coen brothers said this about becoming filmmakers, that if they knew how difficult it was going to be they, before they started, they might not have ever done it. But they didn't know. They went in and they loved it and they did it and they did it and they got some rewards and they got some challenges and they got some awards and they did it. So the first two chapters are a reality check as much as anything else. And the last chapter, it says, if you're in and you're going to do it, here are the good things about it. And that's why I would say, uh, take the dose of the pain of the first two chapters seriously. Yeah. And then the last chapter, uh, make what you will of it, religious or not. Well, can you summarize that last chapter? The best I can do spontaneously of summarizing the last chapter is that the success of the work is not up to you. Doing the work is up to you. And if you are doing the work faithfully, then you leave the results of how much money you make, how much you will be remembered, how great your work is, or how alive your work is. He makes a distinction between that. We should not try to do great work. We should try to do work that comes alive, like giving birth. We do those things, and then we leave the other parts of it up to powers that are beyond our control and that are not our responsibility. Oh, I find that very comforting and, and, uh, and inspiring, and it makes me want to do the work, knowing that I will have some surprises, that things won't work as well as I did, as I thought. It's not a disaster. And things will work better than I thought. And I'll be able to look at it and say, wow, I got to be a part of that. I really liked that feeling that came from him pointing in that direction yeah. at the end. Now, there was one part of this book that we didn't really discuss too much about. And that was the specific things, the specific advice he gives on battling resistance. Give us some examples. <laughs> well, first of all, becoming a professional that is the getting adopting that mentality is the main part of it i think um which includes blocking off time right just like if you're a full-time employee or whatever you have a full-time job there's a specific time you're going to go into work no ifs or buts this is your this is your schedule or you're fired yeah same thing here you block off time hard times yes. yeah uh, specific calendar times yeah. yes and you just show up and you start working. Once you start, he talks about how there's these muses, these things that just start happening that reward us and, and keep us going, um, right? Like as soon as you start working, it, it becomes so easy to continue. We're built to like these natural things just start happening from the way we're built that make the part the, the make the work itself enjoyable and kind of like things just flow through us at that point, right? Like we're not doing it anymore. You ever heard the saying among filmmakers? What's that? That 70% 70, 70 of it is just showing up. Yeah. 
Is it 70 though? Or is it more than that? <laughs> we could argue. It's 80%. No, it's 64. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where did they get 70? <laughs> nice round number. Uh-huh. He also talks about continuing to show up. Even after you fail, you write your first two books, they, they led to nothing. You continue coming into work because this is what you do. And then eventually, it could happen. Your, your fifth book might end up doing really well. Yeah. You just keep showing up and keep doing the work. Along with that, uh, the opposite of enthusiasm, uh, negative enthusiasm, enthusiasm that sabotages was patience. Professionals are patient. Mm-hmm. Professionals are in it for the long haul. Yeah. It's something I've, I've complimented yeah. you on more than once and I, you, you do serve as an icon for me. You have a long-term plan and you just keep going at it without a lot of desperation and it gets there. Eventually, you arrive. Another one was humiliation. Remind me. If someone makes you feel bad, criticizes you in a way or humiliates you, you don't take it personally. You're a professional. This isn't personal. The example he gave is when he was in a meeting with someone. Uh, I don't remember who the person was. Um, but this person was not present. He had a, a Bluetooth headset on and he kept taking calls during the meeting. Didn't even have to reach over and press, you know, pick up the phone. He, just, he would just accept uh-huh. the call and start talking during this meeting. And then eventually one of the calls was personal. And so, he said, could you please give me a minute? And then, so he, so he left the room and then 20 minutes later, the guy walks out and he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, I forgot about you. And so, it's like things like this, you could take it personally, you could say, well, I'm not working with that person ever again and, and you could just, you know, you could make bad career decisions for yourself because you took something like that personally where maybe, you know, who knows what happened during that personal call. Right. Maybe it's totally fine that that person forgot about you. You know, I mean, probably not, but but just don't take it personally. The, um, you know, it's not like you're this this person's uh, family member and they need they owe you some attention. You keep battling, and I really like the metaphor he he gave after that is that it's better to be getting be getting stomped by the bull than to be sitting on the sidelines or to be out in the parking lot of the arena. Yeah, that's similar to that Teddy Roosevelt quote about uh, it's easy to be a critic on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and all, he also mentioned that the the professional learns to recognize envy-driven criticisms. Do you remember that? Briefly, but not. I didn't get anything from it. Envy-driven criticisms are where someone criticizes you because they can't do it as well. And so, they see how you do it wrong. And he says that the professional learns to recognize envy-driven criticism and to take it for what it is, the supreme compliment. The critic hates most that that which he would have done himself if he had had the guts. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, wait a minute. I mean, you could could recognize an envy-driven critic whenever it feels right to you as well. That that could be taken as a um, as a form of resistance as well, you know? Oh, well, yes. He points out that criticizing, criticizing is resistance. No, but I mean, if you, if someone gives you criticism 
and you yeah. come to the conclusion that, oh, that was an envy-driven criticism, yes. that could be resistance as well. It, it certainly could. And that's why he, I, I, I apologize. I should have mentioned that before he said that. It is, uh, uh, the quote was, the professional loves her work. She has invested in it wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly, but she does not forget that the work is not her. Her artistic self contains many works and many performances. The professional gives an ear to criticism, seeking to learn and grow. And then yep. the flip side is that the professional learns to recognize envy-driven criticism, right. which is the supreme compliment. Mm -hmm. The critic hates most that which he would have done himself if he had had the guts. <laughs> it is so easy to criticize. Yeah. It is so hard to do something and it doesn't work and you keep doing it until it works. But there's also something heroic in it. Sheroic. Admirable. <laughs> That's great. I mean, the, the word heroic doesn't come from he. <laughs> but the, the fact that you have to add a feminine version of it that's that's great i know but i'm, I'm trying <laughs> to learn how to uh how to get past a lot of non-inclusive language is the word heroic masculine because of i don't know anyone know and want to help us out on this that would be really weird if it actually was from a masculine root hey there was one funny thing in there about technique and using technique to show off, do you know what I'm talking about? Um, but there's one I want to, oh, here it is. A professional does not show off. A professional's work has style. It is distinctly his own, but he doesn't let his signature grandstand for him. His style serves the material. He does not impose it as a means of drawing attention to himself. This doesn't mean that the professional doesn't throw down a 360 tomahawk jam from time to time just to let <laughs> the boys know he's still in business. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. that. That was that, a good one. That is a, that's a male dominance display. It's oh, yeah. just, I just want everybody to know I'm really, really good at this. <laughs> it, yeah. As I look through my notes, the more I think about it, the more I think there's a lot in this book that is very, this is a recommend. This is a high recommend. Mm -hmm. I want to end this with a, a quote. It, it's, it's a feel-good one and it's funny. Um, you're going to have to find it because you have the book. <laughs> um, okay. It's the part in the book where he talks about writing the end in one of his, in one of the books that he wrote. Uh, the part previous, it's a paragraph beforehand. Uh, when he said, when he talked about how he had tuned out of the culture for so long to get his stuff written, and he said, I had missed Watergate completely. I wrote, yay, I missed at least two American wars so that I could learn perspective and so that I could learn Photoshop and a number of other things. So I felt like, okay, that's part of what the, uh, one must do. He said, I was determined to keep working. I had failed so many times and caused myself and people I loved so much pain thereby that I had, that I felt if I crapped out this time, I would have to hang myself. I didn't know what resistance was then. No one had schooled me in the concept. I felt it though, big time. I experienced it as a compulsion to self-destruct. I could not finish 
what I started. The closer I got, the more different ways I'd find to screw it up. I worked for 26 months straight, taking only two out for a stint of migrant labor in Washington state. And finally, one day I got to the last page and typed out, all caps, THE END. I never did find a buyer for the book, or the next one either. It was 10 years before I got the first check for something I had written, and 10 more before a novel, The Legend of Bagger Vance, was actually published. But that moment when I first hit the keys to spell out the end was epochal. Epochal. Do you know how to pronounce no. it? E epochal. I remember rolling the last page out and adding it to the stack that was the finished manuscript. Nobody knew I was done. Nobody cared, but I knew. I felt like a dragon I'd been fighting all my life had just dropped dead at my feet and gasped out its last sulfuric breath. Rest in peace, motherfucker. <laughs> Next morning, I went over to Paul's for coffee and told him I had finished. Good for you, he said without looking up. Start the next one today. Oh my God, I think the... It, they didn't use the F word in the audio version. <laughs> I totally didn't know that's. I think they changed it. Uh, yeah, they may <laughs> have. You they, may, you know, if we include that in this podcast, we lose our algorithm. I thought I found that it really is inspiring. This is, it's kind of it defines the struggle we go through. That we just we're there. We just we create the work, and that little that ending is so satisfying. Even though nobody knows yeah. about it, we're just there doing the work. And it's a battle, and when we when we finally finish one, it's like we're killing a dragon. Yeah. Do you remember the last thing that he brought up? What's that? Was if we were the last person on Earth, yeah. would we still show up at the studio, the rehearsal hall, mm -hmm. the laboratory? We must do our work for its own sake, not for fortune or attention or applause. Wow, that's a great attitude. That was that uh, if I knew the world was going to end tomorrow, I would still plant the apple tree today. Yeah, that's when he was talking about territories for artists, how yeah. we know our territory. This is ours. And that even if we were the last people on earth, we would still show up in this territory because this is, this is where we want to be. In the last section, he talks about the difference between hierarchy, that's knowing our place in the power structure. And territory, that's knowing our backyard, our, our area, our, our sketchbook pages, the things that we have a domain, a territory that we have mastered. And we have to pay attention to the hierarchy. But as soon as we pay attention to the hierarchy and do things to change our position in it, we start to lose something important. We start to become competitive. We start to become political. We start to sell out. I've, I've observed just political hell in recent years in an environment I've been in. And it's all about that. Who is in charge and who is going to be the one who says what other people do? Whereas territory, if the artist keeps their mind on, I've got this territory, it may be my classroom, my painting, my studio, the thing that I'm making a little money from, that if we keep our energy on that, that's where we're going to thrive, planting our garden. Uh, and switching from the war metaphor, even though there's war that goes on in gardens, <laughs> there's the <laughs> insects between the plants yeah. and the sunlight and the rain and all, all the, the other stuff. There's all sorts of battles going on. 
But the gardening metaphor is a very good one. That you've got a garden and you do the work of the garden and you're not the one who makes the plants grow, but the plants can feed you and it can also be very satisfying. I think there's a reason why a lot of people, especially uh, recently, have started to take up gardening. It's a fundamental, archetypal, creative territory. So maybe we should now find a book called Art as Gardening, Art as gardening. or The Garden of Art. Or seek another. What do we do next? You want, I, I liked doing a book. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way, would be certainly a gender balance. She's got a whole different vibe than a drill sergeant. Oh, okay. Interesting. I read Art and Fear right around the same time I read this book, and I liked Art and Fear. There were two guys that wrote Art and Fear. I can't remember their names, but uh, that was a very good one for our audience. Does it have a similar goal of, of trying to get people to tackle their passion and go after that thing that they want to do in life? Is that what the book yeah. is? Oh, cool. Okay. I, I thought that you had read it. Why, no, I, I, I don't know why. I, I haven't. And you really liked it at the time? I liked it. Yeah. I liked it about as much as I liked The War of Art, which was enough. And I okay. think that if I read it again, I might like it more. Okay, cool. Uh, Let's any... do that one next. <laughs> okay. If it's related to this one, we can connect the two a little bit. Great. Okay, well, thank you, Marshall. Thanks you. Thank you for everybody listening. Uh, yes, thank if you. If you have read the book, let us know in the comments what you thought of it. Uh, anything important we missed? Uh, anything you didn't like about it? Um, and then, yeah, if you if you haven't, go read it and let us know. Yes, thanks, cool. Dan. All right, bye, guys. Okay. Give us those TikToks. See y'all.